This is a deep dive episode on the Connecting Dots podcast, with Paul and Paul Truesdale of Fixed Cost Financial. Read the disclaimer in the show notes before each episode. It is August the 27th, 2019, and it's about uh, one o'clock in the afternoon, and we just got done having a bite to eat, and we had CNBC on in the background. One of the things that we've been talking about is how so many people out there are babbling all over the place about the economy, and you made a couple of insightful comments. What were they? Well, I think for starters, you, you know, you've, you've been saying it's just, there's just no consensus on anything. You've got continually, continual discussion. Nobody really agrees on anything. One bank says go all in. One bank says it's time to take some money off the table. Some banks say, you know, do X. Others say Y. It's just nobody, there's there's no clear consensus as to which way is up, which way is down right now. It's in, I would say, just chaos mode as far as leadership goes. Of course, you know, the topic du jour is always um, the trade war with China because that's, you know, what's been happening lately. But there was a, there was a fairly insane comment somebody mentioned on uh, one of these panel shows on CNBC about how China is a consumption-based economy. Well, yes, and so is everybody else. There I don't I don't that's like saying the sky is blue to me. I, I congratulations you understand a basic modicum about economics. It's, yeah, and those really, are the kind really of comments. Stupid. Yeah, those are the kind of comments when people make a consumption-based economy that is always it always is insane. It's an insane comment and again like you said it's like saying the sun usually rises in the east and settles in the west no it always settles in the west it always rises in the east we don't even need to it's, it's we don't need to talk about it so every society is based upon people doing things when people do things they consume it is the level and degree in which the consumption or what they're doing that's the that is the, the key thing yeah, so this person followed it up by stating that, you know, this this explains a, a great, you know, opportunity for American businesses to sell things to China because they're they're increasingly a consumptive society. Wrong. And I laugh at that because, right. the, you know, this is something that we've talked about for a long time. It's if you're not just a total pinhead, you would, would have understood this and, you know, econ... I don't know, 201, that, you know, the Chinese, when, you know, Nixon opened the door politically to China, but it wasn't until truly H.W. Um, Bush 41 when, you know, the Chinese economy was opened up to American business. And when that was done, the Chinese, you know, everybody viewed China as this, you know, great, amazing opportunity to be able to sell things to, you know, big American, well-known multinationals, conglomerates, big brands were able to go into China and sell stuff for the first time. Um, well, maybe not the first time, but, but, you know, the first time with, with, you know, relative ease. But the, the thing that people don't understand is that the Chinese did it with a, a game plan in mind and they were, they were playing us. They knew that in the long term that they were going to absorb those operations and do everything that the Americans were going to do domestically with their own companies, with their own people. And a good example of that, it went down recently and the discussion you saw about it was just, you know, it's shallow at best was Uber. Uber had a very large China presence. And when Uber went into China, everybody said that was just going to be the blowout move that would make them massively profitable. Yep. And same thing in India. And and it's the same it's the same um, 
mentality that everybody's had for, you know, probably going on 10 years regarding Apple. Oh, once Apple really captures that China market, man, it's just that that's the future of their growth. Like, okay, that sounds good, but what are the actual, you know, what's actually going on on the ground? And what Uber learned is, sure, they may have been, you know, one of the first big market movers for ride sharing in in China. But what they found is that as soon as Chinese competition, domestic competition popped up by by domestically owned and operated corporations, they got slaughtered because the government imposed roadblocks that the domestic companies didn't have. They imposed um, financial restrictions and other things, as well as there was just a natural um, Chinese nationalism that, that appeared seemingly out of nowhere. And you know, Uber ended up losing you know hundreds of millions of dollars overnight on this big giant expansion into China. And ultimately they had to fold the operations, sell the assets to one of the domestic ride sharing companies and totally exited China. And this is a story that when you look at, you know, your American business history, if you look at this time period, probably about 10 years after after the uh, Bush 41 administration, somewhere around there, that's when that, that expertise ended up being implemented by Chinese nationalist companies. And those, they started directly competing with, with American companies. And then they started slowly but surely forcing the American companies to reduce their footprint. Um, well, let me go back on to Bush. A lot of people don't realize this is that President Bush, number 41, a man who was vice president with Ronald Reagan, who became a one-term president, lost to Bill Clinton. That's who this we're talking about. He was, uh, at one time, the ambassador to China. He was the former head of the CIA. He was viewed as a person who would be very hardline against the Chinese. But when you look back and see what he did, you start to wonder, well, he sure was very conciliatory, very open door. Was he played or was he He part of a, you know, what, what, what went on there? I would say, you know, without going down any rabbit holes, I would say generally speaking, the Americans got played just like the British got played with the Hong Kong disen- disentanglement. Um, you know, the, the part of the, you know, China was, I mean, uh, the British weren't going to have a war with China over Hong Kong. They, you know, the, the British military has been in pitiful shape for, for 30 years, um, 40 years. But, you know, they, they even back then they weren't even, they weren't anywhere near capable of being able to have any type of war with China to defend or keep Hong Kong. So they settled on... Um, having this political separation and independence for Hong Kong, where they would, you know, they would, they would have a, you know, they would keep their rights that they would have that they kept under they had under um, British rule, and then they would technically become independent, but you know, become a vassal state for all practical purposes. And the Chinese, uh, I, I've you know, I've heard people put it different ways, but basically the Chinese just outplayed them, you know. Some people would say, you know, they outlawed them or, or some some phrase like that. But, you know, the reality is they just they played them in the short term, knowing that in the long term they wouldn't have any leverage over the situation and they would be able to really get them. And, you know, when you have all these American companies you know, doing things like what you had with Uber, Uber didn't really have a lot of leverage after a while. They they their product was not so unique that it couldn't be copied or, or replicated by Chinese companies or, or nas- Chinese nationals. And with a little bit of government pressure, you know, they're, they're out of business. And you can see the same thing happen with, with Boeing. You know, in order for Boeing to do business with China, they had to make, they, had to, they first had to, um, 
they, they first were allowed to buy all the, oh, wow, we, we love your planes. Then it was, oh, now you need to make some of, you need to assemble these planes in China. So now they're building the things and then, you know, bolting them together for all practical purposes in China. And I can tell you, I did a pretty extensive research study on Chinese aviation about six months ago. They are, and they will be a major player when it comes to aviation, period. Yeah, so, you know. I mean, you're going to see Chinese planes landing in the U.S. very, very soon for passenger planes. Yes, and so then the Chinese government, the next step after, you know, assembling them was, you know, you have to do more assembly. You have to do some original original parts creation in China. And then it then if if you remember under the Obama administration there was a big scandal when they opted to do nothing when the Chinese set gave I believe it was Boeing an ultimatum where they said you are required to give us access to the source code for all the software that are running on planes that you sell in China. So you know they just ratchet up the leverage slowly over time, knowing that you're beholden to them. And that's those are the kind of benefits you get with a country that has the ability to have stable political leadership and stable political game plans for 20 and 30 years. Or in the United States, I mean, you're, you know, you're four or eight years and you're done. That's, that's, you, you get, you get, you know, the, everybody can talk about the steady state and the deep state and all of these types of names for people that are in the government, government lifers basically, but they don't drive policy. The policy gets driven by political actors in the United States. And, you know, if, even if, you know, you had Trump setting up this masterful game plan for, how to beat China in, a, in this long-term trade war that lasts 15 or 20 years, even if he had the masterful playbook that was to win, it will not be continued beyond his, his administration. Yeah, we're, we, we are always playing a long-term game with short-term players. Always. Yeah. So, you know, as far as these, these talking heads go, it's just, it's hilarious to hear people talk about these things because they clearly have zero idea what they're talking about. Their understanding of these topics are, are you know, they're puddle deep at best. Um, and, you know, I don't, and I don't even understand why. It's just, it's very clear that you just have people in the world that have, I don't know, interesting, prestigious jobs that, that are, you know, they, they're just fakers. They do not live and breathe any of the important details that, you know, you were saying the other, a little bit earlier, we were talking about rates and where things go and, Rates of, are, of course, having um, massive fluctuations and volatility due to the trade issues involved in, in all these things. You know, people are using the trade war as an excuse to, you know, do a million different things. But, you know, you said, you know, some of this banking stuff, you know, just kind of makes your head spin sometimes when you try to put it all into perspective. And it, and it is because it's, it's extremely complicated. But if you have somebody who doesn't understand basic recent history on how the Chinese have, have, have dealt with, you know, what I would call the internationalization and, re, and then domestication of the international technologies that were imported to them, then how do you understand anything else? How do you understand the context of, of any of this if you don't understand just, just the basic recent past, you know? I think what makes people's heads spin is currency trading. I don't think anyone really, when I say anyone, I'm not talking about us or a handful of serious academics, I'm talking about the average person doesn't understand how can a dollar be worth more or less? It's a dollar. It's that, In other words, most people, I think, understand what a baseline is. Okay, To score a run in baseball, you have to get around the diamond. And you have to go to first, to second, to third, and home. And when you get to home, you can't be tagged out. If you do that, you score a run. The problem with currency is that we expect the rule to be very firm, but 
wait a minute, now I'm, I've lost money? I mean, I understand inflation and deflation, but how does that work? And that's something I think is a really weird thing that a lot of people don't understand, which is why proponents of like the gold standard talk about the importance of the gold standard, some baseline. And then, of course, who's buying gold like crazy? Who is stockpiling gold, Russia and China? I mean, there's a lot of things I just think people don't really understand once you get beyond supply and demand. And I've always said this, everything comes down to supply and demand. China is a consumption society. Okay, it's supply and demand. Right now they have higher demand. Why? No different than we had in the 50s, 60s in the United States or the post-World War to generation. Everybody who employs somebody, everybody who employs somebody, that person who is an employee is always thinking in the back of their head, I could do it better. I could, I could angle. You always, you always have that. So when we go over to China, we have our people go over there. You have your experts, you have your people who are building things. They have to teach the Chinese. They have to work side by side. Um, it's not rocket science, Gomer, that they're then going to kick you out and do it themselves. So we really are handicapped in this whole situation. I like what Stuart Varney said. I'm not a big Trump fan, but I like what Stuart Varney said, where he said, you know, basically, in essence, Trump is not playing by the rules of social order. He's playing by his own rules. And so the recent, was it the G7 that got together? I believe so. You know, he is saying he dominated them. He didn't look bad. He dominated them because I'm not playing your games. This is what we need to get done. So it's, the problem with all of this is the government is so big. You can't do anything without government involvement. In China, it's the same thing, but the government is a controlling force. It's a unified force. Here, it's all over the board. I, I just think that what a lot of people are confused on is you're quite literally looking at the unraveling of the United States as the dominant major world power. And it wasn't always this way. It used to be that, you know, we had the Cold War and the Russians and us faced off to each other. You had other powers that were quite powerful. The English used to be powerful. The French used to be powerful. You know, we people used to say when I was a kid, oh, one day, you know, with the number of people, India would be the most powerful thing to fight with. But there are a couple of things that have happened in life. I mean, 1982 was a watershed year for England. Um, in 1982, we had the Falkland War, and England was upset with what the Argentinians were doing in what was known as the Falkland and the South Sandwich Islands. Now, everybody thinks that there was one ship, because it was a very famous video, you saw the HMS Sheffield blown up to smithereens with an existent missile that, you know, it's a U.S.-made missile. But most people don't realize that there were six big ships in the British Navy that were blown up in the, the Falklands War. I bring that up because while the British were able to free and get their people back and, you know, they won that little skirmish, they lost six ships and they lost a lot of credibility, which goes to what you were saying when we were talking beforehand. British can't do anything about Hong Kong. Nobody can do anything about Hong Kong or China or whatever. Nobody has the, no single country has the capability to take on the world. We don't. Anybody, Nobody does. Any international, even anybody in the international community stating that they can do anything about Hong Kong, the the, analog, the analogous situation would be like the United States going in and taking over the Dominican Republic. What are you going to do about it? You know, our response would be okay. You you want to come and save the Dominicans and the Haitians and. Want to you want to you want to keep them independent? You and what army? And that's what the Chinese that that's that's been in essence the the lack of the uh, the 
lack of serious discussion about the political ramifications of the reintegration of Hong Kong and in the in the in the little bit in the short term and then in a little bit longer term Taiwan you know we may be selling planes to the Taiwanese or whatever but you know the the uh, actual analysis on the ground is that the Taiwanese will be able to hold out for about 12 to 12 to 20 days and then they're done. Right. You know, it's it, it unless there's some type of catastrophic failure on the Chinese part, like it's it shouldn't be a problem. Um, Hong Kong is literally a one day operation. They roll the they roll the uh, they roll the tanks in and replace the government officials that are rabble rousing. And most of the people there anyways are loyal to the Chinese government as is. And, you know, the military and I mean, the police state officials are already in the Chinese control. That's, you know, the police in the in the the police and the military police and the government in Hong Kong, they, they, they've already, they're already under control. That's why China is not sending in the, the troops. They're basically just sitting back waiting if things escalate, you know, because they already, they already for all practical purposes have it under control. Um, but yeah, you, you have, you have the, you have the decoupling of the, of American supremacy worldwide, as far as economics and trade and all that goes. But the thing is, is the American the, the American dominance worldwide in, in international affairs was always going to be a short-term item because America does have this explicitly by design short-term political calendar. And, you know, it was done by design to keep America isolationist. I mean, that's very explicit. That hasn't worked. <laughs> no, but, but, you know, pay, pay attention to what I'm saying here. You know, you have a situation where it's temporary in nature. Everything's temporary, but this is especially temporary, primarily because... The Chinese have this long-term timetable, and we don't. We were able to dominate with a short timetable. One, because we had a series of presidencies that all agreed and never seemed to end, the World War II and, and, and on. And the secondary thing is, is the majority of these, you know, industrialized economies in the world had not, they were pre-industrial at this period, and everybody that was industrialized, we had destroyed. By having tactical entries into World War I and II, we allowed the Europeans to destroy themselves. And in in Asia, you know, everybody likes to beat their chest about how, you know, we beat the, the... super strong Japanese army. But the reality is, as much effort and resources that we piled into the Pacific theater, we didn't do a lot. The Chinese bore the brunt of the majority of the Japanese army. I think it's something like 70% of the Japanese army was deployed into Manchuria during the majority of World War II. So, you know, the United States has, you know, put your, put your, you know, your war history hat on. The United States never enters wars. And we may start all of them fundamentally by sowing seeds of, of chaos all the time. But we don't enter conflicts until they're well underway and we can go in and clean up. Mm-hmm. And and we've done it for the better part of 100 years. Every conflict that we lose is because we are the ones that initiate it and it's, it's just dumb in nature. Or it's not initiated with a, a clear game plan. And the other thing is, is when you put into context our entry into these conflicts in a late point is beneficial because of our short timetable. Our entry into World War II, 1941 to 1944, late late 1944, early mid 45. Yeah, we're we'll talking pa- four and a half, five years maximum here. Yeah, and pause because everybody here in the United States attributes World War One during those time frames. It started way before that. Well, I'm saying World War Two. I'm sorry, I meant to say yeah. World War Two. I'm saying is, but everybody attributes it to our participation. It began way before that. Yeah, it began in 1930. 39 officially, 38 really. Mm-hmm. Um, a few years prior to that, politically, um, you know, but that's just the Euro- you know the European theater.
later, the World War so the seeds of World War One were sowed in the, the aftermath of World War World War Two were sowed in World War One. It's you know they're both they're both inter interconnected very deeply. Um, but it's very interesting. The you just, your political timetables are some of the most important factors in how these global events happen and, and how they're shaped. And so many people just view these things on a surface level, and it's, it's just quite silly because like I to bring it back to the inane comment by the panelist commentator, China's a consumptive economy. Congratulations, everybody else is too. You know, literally everybody else is. Without market discovery, you have no economy. So yes, everybody's a consumption economy. And you know, I'm going to we'll wrap this up. But one of the things I think everybody fails to think about, and that is, and I'm going to tie this to war, because, you know, business is war. It's just conflict. It's a conflict. You know, it's just war by another means. So years ago, I had a chance to go to St. Bart's. I don't know if you remember much of my comments about that, but we were in Nevis, and we didn't go to St. Kitts, but we went over to um, the Four Seasons in uh, Nevis, and um, we took a trip over to uh, St. Bart, which St. Bartholomew or Bartholomew, whatever it is there, St. Bart's. And I know enough of the history just to be dangerous, but what I know is that the French took it over, and all the indigenous people there were slaughtered. It was a genocide. They're gone, completely gone. Now, nobody ever talks about that, all the warm and fuzzy do-gooders out there. You know, nobody is demanding reparations for these people that were slaughtered. And it's just one of those things that's kind of like not really talked about. Well, here's the thing. When the British had control over Hong Kong, a lot of those men and women became British subjects in the sense that families for many generations thought, acted, and considered themselves a version of British, okay? No, no big deal. It's like it's really weird for an American with very little experience to see a person who's very, very black in their pigment speaking with a very heavy English bro. It just, it just blows you away. So there are different colors, shapes, and sizes of people. But it's the mindset and also the physical characteristics that China controls. So China is going to, I guarantee you this is going to happen. China is going to do a genocide on a lot of people that are currently living in Hong Kong. The world is going to watch it happen. Guarantee it. it history, that's what plays out. If you look at Genghis Khan, I mean, what did he do? He went and ran across the steps and everywhere else. And either you got with the program or they got rid of you, didn't they? People talk that, well, this is just an abomination. Well, what about the Bible? There are places in the Bible where people were commanded to get rid of people. So either you get with the program or you're going to get out of the program. If I'm a CEO of a company and I retire, everybody who is a lieutenant of mine is subject to termination very quickly because whoever comes in is going to bring their own people in. If it's internal, there's going to be different camps. It's a bloodletting. It always works that way. Families stick together. And if you don't stick together, you're out of here. It's always going to be that. Well, that sounds like the mob, Paul. Um, yeah, people work together. All this networking that we've been talking about and doing for the last two years to get a good handle on a couple of issues that we want to get a handle on from a real hands-on level. People like to deal with people they know, people they know, they like, and, and trust. So the Chinese, going back to what we said, they may know us, but they don't like us, and they don't trust us, and we don't trust them. So Apple's going to get slaughtered. IBM got slaughtered. Um, Uber got slaughtered. Everybody's going to get slaughtered when it comes to China. They're playing a different, they have a different rule book. And I think, I mean, I'm not supporting Trump in any way, shape, or form, but at least he gets that. Well, the Chinese. <laughs> at least he says he gets it. 
the fundamental reality on the China question in general is that the Chinese conflict was going to happen regardless. And I think the Trump situation is that he, of course, saw that, was willing to say it, and was willing to at least initiate the conflict. Did so without much of a good plan. No. And I have criticisms, but, you know, the reality is it was going to happen regardless. It was, and and at least right now, it happens in a situation where we have had at least some leverage and we have a little bit more control. But if, if, if this all went down when we're on our back feet, then, you know, you know, there wouldn't be much of a conflict. It would be, you are now beholden to the new superpower, which may end up being the situation anyways, but at least, you know, you gave a fighting chance. But and that's the, why the, that's why I brought up the the British and and their battle with the Argentinians and the six ships. That was a watershed moment where people realized um, you ain't so powerful. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and, and then we're Brit- facing the same thing. Of course, the British the British admitted that themselves when they started relinquishing their own colonies across the world. Oh, absolutely. In the post World War II period, to basically appease the United States. Well, I mean, you know, South Africa was independent but back in the day you know most people don't realize that the first heart transplant took place in south africa yep and um today that very same medical facility does at most at the very most 30 heart transplants a year and that one time they were the leading place to go in the world and now no there there are no more heart transplants going on in south africa yeah the last research i I saw the last year that i could find it was down to down to 30 and now it's probably done right yeah i believe all the facilities that are capable of doing that are or have the doctors have relocated out of the country? Yeah, it's just, it's just yeah. I mean, won't get into that one. That one's a whole. Doctor Bernard. Yep. Just um, yeah. I mean, it's it's just a mess. But but that, you know, but that's but it's change. It's always going to be that way. Of course. And people will revert. Whoever is whoever has the most amount of people. You know, size matters. That old joke. In in this case, numbers are the numbers. Yeah, uh, size is also massive risk, and it's also it's harder to steer a bigger ships. So you know everything has has its benefits and and detriments. But you know we're just in a, we're just in a, a strange transition period, and a lot of people aren't going to like the outcome. But you know you can blame sixty years of inept political leadership and incompetency among among your politicians for for uh, for what's getting ready to happen. Yeah, I'll finish up with this. I think we always talk about the quantitative and the qualitative analysis. And for those of you who have listened to the entire podcast, the quantitative simply refers to the numbers. And the problem with numbers is that one and one will always be two. Two and two will always be four. The problem is with corporate accountants, oftentimes the answer is not two or four. It's it depends. And then when it depends, just like when language does not have clean, clear, and concise definitions, you have problems. That's why we we rail all the time about fiduciary standards and people who are pure frauds when it comes to calling themselves fiduciaries. And it's just like accounting standards that fluctuate GE and they're fluctuating non-transparent accounting standards that could make Bernie Madoff look like a child's act if this thing continues. Same thing goes on in China. You don't really know what the numbers are. So when you have people get on TV, when they get on your YouTube or whatever you read, you get your sources and they're going on about this, that, and everything else as if they know what's going on. I got news for you. Always break it down to the simple. And if you don't do that, you will get screwed over. These people who have degrees doesn't mean they know Jack from Shinola. Everybody's guessing right now. We're in a we're in a new territory. And that's when I always say go back to the basics. Stick to the basics and keep it simple. Thank you.
That does it for today. Thanks for joining me. I'm Paul Truesdell with Fix Cost Financial. You can reach us by phone by calling 212-433-2525 between 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. Eastern. Again, that's 212-433-2525. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or YouTube. But ideally, for links, notes, PDFs, videos, and more to this podcast, well, simply go directly to FixCostFinancial.com and click on the blog or podcast links. For quick reference, and this is easy to remember, simply type dots.fm. That's dots.fm. Isn't that cool? And you'll land right on our podcast page. Now visit Fixed Cost Financial, the home of fixed cost investing, where it's better because it's simple and works. Break the mold and do it today. All rights reserved. Reproduction or use without written authorization prohibited without written authorization.